Welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content, a podcast about what it's like to write for as little as two cents per word. I'm Alex. And I'm Elizabeth. So today we're talking about content mills. We've mentioned content mills in a few previous episodes, but just to recap, a content mill is basically like a small or medium-sized business. And what it does is it specializes in selling services to other small and medium-sized businesses, sometimes to enterprises or larger organizations as well. But what they're selling is a package of services related to writing, graphic design, social media, video, and all of this content is meant to be discoverable, especially on Google, to some extent on Facebook or other social media platforms as well. Search engine optimization, which is often abbreviated as SEO, is really a core of the content mill business model. So just to give you a short overview of what SEO is, it's a bunch of techniques that have been honed over time to make certain types of written audio visual content more to make it more likely to rank highly in search engines as the name suggests and so this seo consists of putting keywords into articles it consists of there's also a web design component the way the page is laid out does it have certain tags on it is it easy to navigate does it is does it load quickly is it is also a factor so there are technical and there's quantitative and qualitative aspects of seo but so for content mills, they, in order to make this S, to sell this SEO to businesses, they, they, they show results of we got so-and-so's website to rank on page one or, and that's really what you want to do is rank on page one because ranking on page two is often like, you may as well not exist. People so, don't click <laughs> to the next page of Google. If they haven't found what they're looking for on the first page, they change their search terms. Yeah, exactly. And the thing about content mills is that they, the people who work at content mills are, they're very hard workers, but a lot of them are pretty young and they don't, they aren't really experts in the industries they're writing about. So for example, like a content mill might contract with a client to write a bunch of content about data centers or about software defined networking and somebody what would like those words mean. <laughs> So a data center is like a facility that's where any large technology company, your Google, your Facebook, your Apple, and so on, they have these facilities called data centers that just have massive amounts of IT infrastructure in them. So things like servers and storage disks and internet connectivity and these data centers are meant to process just the massive amount of traffic and data that's coming in here from these companies that they're the apps and services that they sell. And then the other hand, software defined networking is something that is, it's way too difficult to explain. Uh, more esoteric. Yeah. It's like basically the, all the decisions about how a network's traffic is being routed is going through like a CPU and the CPU is dynamically making decisions about where do I send this packet or where do I send this traffic intelligently deciding what to prioritize and what types of connectivity to use as it used what's called multi-label protocol switching, which is a, a very old technology. And, or does it just use your basic sort of broadband internet? But the point of that is not to get too into deep in the weeds, but imagine somebody who's 23 years old, they just got out of college and they're sit down, they have to write 4,000 words a day on this. 
So that's really a pretty good window uh, to start with into what it's like to work at a content mill. But, you know, I think it's important to note that that we know each other because we worked at content mill the same time. Yeah. And I was that 23 year old, 25, I was 25 when I started. And uh, as we go through these topics of the top whatever things that we wish we didn't know about content mills, I think about that person that I was at 25 and I really just want to shake them <laughs> yeah. just because I didn't really know what my worth was as a writer and as a laborer. And a lot of these things are going to be apparent as we go through. Yeah. So we have come up with a very SEO-esque title for this episode. So we don't it's know. The, yeah. It's like <laughs> it, right now it's the top X things we didn't know about content mills. So if you've read a lot of high-ranking content, especially in the last decade or so, you know that these types of listicles where there's a certain number and then you talk about the top this, the top most expensive, the top, the best, the 10 best or the 15 un most unforgettable, anything like that. It's something that for many people, it's hard to resist clicking on that. So let I me mean, think of what I described earlier about SEO being this intricate science. On the other hand, sometimes it's as simple as putting this type of title where it's the top seven most unbelievable things about Chicago hot dogs or something. <laughs> and then, and then you could even go further than that and something like in parentheses, number four will blow your mind. And uh, so we don't know which one of these is going to blow your mind, but, and actually we don't even know the exact number yet, but I can go back and do that later. So I think we're going to, the, just to set up the format, we're going to go down this list back and forth. We each have some things that we wanted to talk about and if it is okay with you, I will start us off. Yes. All right. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is something that we have mentioned quite a few times on the show, which is how much really is 4,000 words? Yeah. And we have talked before about how when we both started at our content mill experience, it was required. We had a daily volume of 4,000 words. And I have joked in the past with like friends and a potential job, like during interviews yeah. about how 4,000 words, that's a 12 page paper. I found a really fun chart and I thought that we could go through here and look at this and see what 4,000 words actually looks like. At a single space, Times New Roman 12 point font. Everyone's favorite Times New Roman. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 4,000 words is eight pages, single spaced. Mm. Yeah, that's eight pages is like, when I was in college, like even in my most writing intensive courses, we might write over the course of the entire semester, maybe 15 to 25 pages combined right. over the entire semester. And so like even the, the dreaded term paper at the end of the semester, the great big paper, everybody was like dreading to write. In retrospect, it was nothing compared to what it's like to work at a content mill because those papers, you're talking maybe 10 12 pages, something like that. And that's double space, right? So yeah. So double and, space, 4,000 words is 16 pages, <laughs> which is many more pages than I ever had to write, even in my graduate work. I think the longest paper I wrote in grad school, I think it was 20 pages, double spaced. But that's, yeah, it's, that, yeah it's, they, they, you say that it's labor intensive and everybody dreads it. Well, think about getting up in the morning and dreading doing that every day. <laughs> Yeah. Or I think about the fact that 
my undergrad thesis, which I thought of as just this all-consuming project that literally took an entire school year from September 2007 to May of 2008, in which I pulled several all-nighters back then when I could still do that. When I have a printed copy of it, and I think it's about 65 pages double-spaced. So to put that in perspective, when I was working at the content mill, I would have written that in about four days. So in terms of just the page length. And you can imagine like the quality difference between the 65 pages that you spent. And the thing is, yeah, you're right. And But the other thing is that when you have cultivated this, this obsession with quality. So like when your baseline is writing 65 page thesis or the term paper that you have like two weeks to write, when you go into the content mill mode, it's hard to let that go at first because you're like, I still want everything I write to be perfect. I want it to be incredibly high quality. I want it to have, I think I wrote even some pieces that had footnotes in them. And, and it's, so it's really hard to let that go. And then you're like, what if I just wrote it and I didn't care? And then somehow that never works. So it's, you feel bad, or at least I do. I was oh, like, yeah, no. it's like, I can't write this. It's too embarrassing to, to put my name on this. And then of course you have to weigh in your mind. If I do write this sort of at a subpar level, will the client even notice? And what's the cutoff point at which the client notices? I don't know. It was never super predictable. So a lot of times I was just like, I might as well try to make it as good as I can. But then that was, of course, pretty, pretty stressful. And right, because you're doing it as good as you can. And for some clients, that's enough. For other clients, it's they expect I there was one client, I think that they shifted between you and me who expected us to be experts like actual experts in the field. Mm. Even though we are good writers, we don't know anything about the this topic. It was data analytics. It was the client was an Excel competitor, essentially. Yeah, I remember. I do remember this. Yeah, so, and, yeah. Yeah, and they hired a, a like a business analyst to, yeah. to ghostwrite his pieces and he fell in love immediately and it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing that's sort of a, worth mentioning here as a sidebar is that Basically, anything you read on the internet that's from some high-ranking person, like a CEO or a vice president, it's always ghostwritten. Oh, yeah. Because, and it's, and I know that for a fact, because many of the, as we've discussed before, at the content mill, when you write something, it doesn't have your name on it. It usually either, it doesn't have any byline at all, or it has somebody else's byline, like the CEO, for example, and it's wrote this, and then you have this incredibly long article, which then you're, if you thought about it for even two seconds, you're like, what is this? How would this person even write this? They're probably doing a whole day of meetings and then they're sitting down and writing like 1200 words with a bunch of like links and maybe even a footnote or two. So, and it's just, it, I guess there's a suspension of disbelief there that kind of works. So people like, they don't really think about it. But I don't think people that, who are not us, I don't think people who are not us. It probably doesn't occur to them at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like they never think about it even once. But just to go back to the link thing, I think I might have mentioned this in the very first episode, but my audio back then was a little choppy, so it didn't maybe come through and it was said in passing. But like Hamlet by William Shakespeare is mm-hmm. only about a little bit less than 30,000 words. So you're looking at something that at the the old content mill rate would have easily been churned out in the equivalent of of under two weeks. And just in terms of the number of uh, the raw number of words, I'm not saying somebody's going to write something that good in two weeks in in the context of a content mill trying to 
stuff a bunch of keywords into rank for data analytics. But so here's another example. Every November, a bunch of writers get together and try to write a novel, right? Yeah. Uh, the 50,000 word novel. If we went by content mill standards, that novel would get written in 12 days. Yeah. It's just when you, the order is, it's a whole order of magnitude different than what people think of as a lot of writing. If you really want to go like way out there, the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace is I think about half a million words. So you're looking at, so in a typical work day, work, work month, you have about what, 20 days, you can maybe get 80,000 words per month. So in about six months, you would have written the equivalent of Infinite Jest in terms yep. of just what you would have written for the content mail. And Infinite Jest is, if you've ever held it in your hands, it's just, it's massive. Solid. It is a physical object. <laughs> I have my, I actually have a copy here from 2002 and I'm actually, I have something to say about this book later, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, the number of words is mind boggling. I, in my first newsletter or one of my early newsletters on Substack, which is hosted at the same place as this podcast, the, uh, there's someone named Ryan Cooper. He actually has a podcast. that's really good called Left Anchor and I'll link it in the show notes. And he also writes for the American Prospect and he was chronicling the process of writing a book that is titled, how are you going to pay for that? And this book came out this year and he tweeted, quote, 2,500 words down today. And my brain feels like it's running out of my ear. No, right. Okay, Ryan. Yeah. You've written two thirds of the quota. <laughs> yeah. Still got to turn out 1500 more words before you can go home. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man. I think an unintended consequence of thinking about your writing in terms of how many words is that now, even when I sit down to write for my, for myself, for the creative writing that I do, I think about it in terms of how many words that I've done. Yeah. And I don't know if I would have as organically come to that if I hadn't been so focused on the 4,000 words. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. I did not really quantify it. And I don't think I ever checked word counts on papers really before I worked at the content mill. Usually what I was checking was page counts. So that's its own sort of, but that's not nearly as bad. But anyway, I thought about with Substack which I was just talking about, Substack, you can write on the, in the web interface and it posts to your site, your domain.substack.com, but it also gets sent as an email, but there is a limit on how big the email can be. And it's a certain number of kilobytes and it's something related to, it's because of Gmail and in particular enforces this limit. And so basically you can't go over about 4,000 words and... Oh. So it's, I know, what is with that number? And, but anyway, like I think about how much effort goes into writing one of these like Substack things. And it's just, sometimes it'll take me multiple days and I'll be thinking about it and come back to it later. And I have all these sources that I want to get in there and I have nine or 10 footnotes. And then I think about, wow, I used to do this every single day and not just in, in the context of one article either. Like I would be writing multiple articles, like I would be writing a thousand word white paper, then I'd be switching gears and writing like five, 200 word blog posts. So it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. It, it's a recipe for madness after a while. You just can't, you can't keep going with it. I was amazed that lasted as long as I did, but 
Yeah, I, yeah. Well, we've talked about this before, but right. I am also amazed that you lasted as long as you did. Yeah. <laughs> I worked at the content mill for a year as a full-time employee and then six months as a freelancer, and I could not do it it's, it's It kind of makes me laugh in a way when we talk about working at the content mill because the word mill, for some reason, conjures up the image of like someone going into a literal mill, like yeah. punching in their time card, punching out. And it's the thing about working at the content mill is... Nominally, it is a white collar job, but the exertion and the stress and just the physicality of it too. Like I, I literally broke a MacBook Pro from typing on it so much for with this job. Like it was one of those infamous MacBook Pros with the butterfly keyboard. They were very fragile and typing thousands of words per day is like pretty much the worst thing you could possibly do with that. And I went through, I don't know, just the damage to the keyboard was Here's some real evidence of how hard this thing is, but I don't know. I got the, for some reason, the image of, I don't know if you've ever watched Twin Peaks, but the season one is all about this mill. And so I was just thinking, somebody going into this literal mill and, you know, sitting down at their computer. Sometimes that's what it felt like, honestly. Yeah. And actually, I think that kind of dovetails nicely into our second point, which is a little bit of a bummer. Oh, yeah. Uh, this uh, so This is the second point, and this one is about wage gaps. So we're going to talk about relative compensation among the employees of the typical content mill. Yeah. And I don't mind, I don't mind talking about salaries and things like that. I know it makes some people uncomfortable. I think that it's important to talk about these things so that we can make our employers pay us fairly. Yeah. When people don't talk about salaries, I think the employer is the one who benefits because then there's no chance for really solidarity between the employees because they have no idea that, oh, this other person is making two times as much money as I am and they do the same yeah. thing. So. so I want to tell you a story about that. And I, you've probably heard me tell the story before. But when I, so when I was hired at the content mill, we lived in Chicago. The content mill was located in downtown Chicago. And I was hired at a price point of $30,000 a year out of graduate school. And I didn't think anything of it. Times were tight, like whatever. This is, it was my dream job at the time. I get to write for a living. It's great. Fast forward to a year later and I find out on my very last day of work that the folks in charge of the accounts, like the customer success managers, which is not the right acronym. Yeah, but we don't have to use the real acronym. It's right. Yeah. (laughs) The folks who were in charge of the client accounts were making literally double what I was making. Yeah. And the reason we call this podcast Our Literal Two Cents About Content is that at that $30,000 price point, we were making two cents per word. Yeah. And to put that in perspective, a professional who is paid for writing should be making at least a dollar per word. Like I... Uh, today's market. After I left the content mill, I did a single freelance piece that I did in about two days and it was maybe a thousand words. I made the equivalent of, it was only about maybe $200 less than my entire first paycheck from when I worked at the content mill. (laughs) And this was just for one piece. This was like, this piece would have been something I would have written in one day and it wouldn't even have been my entire day. It would have been a fraction. Oh, it's, yeah, the rate, and I think I mentioned this before, but I've often joked, and I do this kind of out of out of love more than like hate because I do like the HBO show Sex and the City, but 
I've, I've often said that it's one of the most unrealistic shows ever. And the reason is because the main character is a writer and she yeah. lives in this fancy neighborhood in Manhattan and she gets something like, I don't know, $5 per word. And so it's like a glorified BuzzFeed list. Yeah. Writer, yeah. It's, like I mean, yeah. it's, I think someone says, so, I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm cracking up here, but someone on Twitter, his name is Joe Bernstein. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes if it's still up, but he was looking at some book from like 1997 or something. And like, he looked at the back cover of the book. I think it was something like a book of jokes by Dave Barry. And there was like all these different reviews in the back and they were all from newspapers. And he said, this was what it was like in the nineties. Newspapers had 20 people on staff making a million dollars combined or something. <laughs> Not they did. All they did was review these books. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like how much money there was in newspapers and magazines back then, like the ones that mm-hmm. Carrie Bradshaw was writing for. And you could just write one art or like, uh, now this I can't find on Twitter because it's a bit long lost, but if something like somebody was joking that if they'd been born in like 1940, they could have like written one article when they were 20 and they would have used the proceeds from that to like travel through Europe and start some <laughs> careers in novelist. And it's, oh, yeah. And, uh, nice. Or like yeah. the old joke about, yeah, someone would write one article in 1968 and they'd make, I don't know, let's say a hundred dollars for it and adjusted for inflation. It'd be something like they make a thousand dollars for that one piece or something, maybe more. Yeah. And then they get royalties. And they get royalties. They and printed. So it's, but anyway, yeah, it's the pay, the content mill really embodies the race to the bottom in terms of, could you pay someone even, the only, you couldn't pay somebody less than we got paid at the content mill unless you're willing to pay them like. Spotify rates of fractional pennies. Yeah, really? you know, my reference here is that when a song, you stream a song on Spotify or YouTube, the artist gets something like 0.0789 pennies. And even that is probably an overestimate. Oh, and I want to make something clear. I'm not, I wasn't, I was at the time. I'm not now angry that the, the customer service specialists were making double because $60,000 in Chicago, Illinois is still not enough. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that anybody was able to live in Chicago on 30,000. I figure a lot of them had to do, had to be doing freelance or they had like spouses who made decent money. Yeah. So that's where I'm at with this. And the, so really the full blame lies on the company. No blame to anybody that we worked with or anything. Yeah. And everybody's trying to do their best. And my own spin on the the writer versus client or customer success manager, whatever you want to call them. I, after working there for like more than eight years, I still made less than what one of those people makes on their first day. Yeah, it's the pay increases are meager and at best. And, And then, of course, I have no insight into how much the executives are making, but it has to be. It's more than that. I That's all I'll say. Yeah. (laughs) yeah so anyway it's a literal two cents yes our literal two cents about content yeah so we can go from there into something less of a bummer so one thing that i have noticed about or that i did notice about working at the content melt is that it really tried to embody this like tech startup Type mm-hmm. vibe. There, the the physical location in Chicago is in this old rustic building and with exposed rafters and exposed brick. And it, it was, was like cool. the most 2012 thing ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the there was like a big chalkboard where you could write messages to your coworkers and draw pictures. We never had time to do any of this stuff. Um, oh, at course, one yeah. point, they put in a yoga room 
And let me tell you, nobody did yoga. That's <laughs> no time. Yeah. There was a foosball table and a Nintendo 64. I was just getting ready to mention the Nintendo 64. Yeah. yeah that was. I never touched it. <laughs> I think I saw one person ever playing it. <laughs> it was, I don't even know what the context was. And I think I remember somebody who did my orientation was like, they mentioned something about that room at, at some point. But then they prefaced it with something like, I can't imagine you would ever have time for that or something. <laughs> and this was like on my first or second day. And I was like, Ugh. I was like, no, well, that's pretty bad news. And it's, it was. I did get free coffee. And I will go ahead and blame the content mill for my coffee addiction. Because if I needed a break from writing, I was getting coffee. That yeah. was just the thing to do in the office. Mm -hmm. I was up to six and seven cups a day by the end. And I, at one point I was just like, we should not. But it was free. Very tech startup. Yeah. The tech startup thing, they, some of this is like them imitating their customers, many of whom were tech companies, some mm -hmm. startups, or a lot of them very new companies who didn't really have a content strategy in place. And so they'd, they'd try anything once. So the content mill, in a way, behaving like a tech startup was very in line with how their customers were. And it also showed their own ambitions because eventually one of the services they started selling was they, they literally started selling their own proprietary software to customers. So, and yeah, I won't talk about it too much, but it's a good example of selling like an as a service thing where you can sell somebody a platform, keep charging them for it, and then they have to use it to to post and manage their content. It's a proprietary tool. Is the software that we used? It's right. a little, it was after your time, but it, it was very much if the software from the time you were there. It's in the same spirit. It's a very clunky sort of application. <laughs> You probably could have, you probably could have done a lot of the same things in an Excel spreadsheet. And I have often just a, a digression here, but so many articles that I wrote for the content mill were about how the client's software was much better than using Excel. You, you, Excel is stupid. You're a loser for using Excel. You have to use our stuff instead. <laughs> and I'm just thinking Excel is, everybody uses Excel basically. It's more than 30 years old. It's probably never going away. And just the informational density that you get in Excel and the versatility, I just don't, I don't see anybody making anything that's going to dislodge that. But anyway, the software that, the internal software that they built was, it was, yeah, as we both know, it, it was quite a nightmare. It had a lot of, there's on Twitter, there's often these, every now and then there's some thread that comes out. I don't know how familiar you are with Dungeons and Dragons, but like the different alignment ratings, chaotic, neutral, chaotic good chaotic evil and so on i'm moonlight as a person who runs a journal about ttrpgs yes oh. yes so <laughs> yeah i'm talking to the right person about this and uh, but they were like i think it was chaotic evil was like writing directly in the cms and <laughs> lawful good was something like writing in a word doc offline <laughs> and, um, i can't it was something like but the idea of writing in the, so just some background here the content mill had its own content management system like similar to a WordPress or a, a sub stack, you want an interface where you enter the text that's going to eventually get posted on the web. And it was just, it had all kinds of problems with it. But one of the things that 
was very bad at saving things. So people would write like enormously long blog posts. They'd try to save it and they'd get some kind of error. They'd come back completely gone and no way to get it back. God, there's nothing like that feeling. Your stomach just falls into the pit of your feet. Like it's pretty ridiculous. It's devastating. And you spend so much you spend time so much that, time. It's that you have to spend more time recouping that work and you have to meet your quota. And the other thing too, that, that gave me a similar feeling to that, but the other thing that gave me a similar feeling to that was when sometimes you would have two writers on the same account and they'd both be trying to hit their quota in the day. And you would want to make sure that you weren't writing about the same topic. And then sometimes it would happen that like somebody would write an article and then only realize too late that somebody on that same feed had written the exact same sort of angle earlier in the day. So that and was that awesome. That's something that happened on purpose, right? There's only so much you can say about these, some of these topics. Right. So like some, some of them are so niche that there might be a, only one good source out there per day at most. So, right. uh, really, yeah. One of my clients was a cloud-based faxing software. Uh, yeah. I do remember. So, yeah. So can you imagine, there is only like three articles that I could write. And they were actually really cool about letting me rehash old, old topics. But can you imagine if there were two people on that account? We, we would be writing the same thing all the time. And the funny thing was that despite all of these proprietary systems that were in place, it was all the only way to really track who was writing on what and trying to stay in sync was literally just having a spreadsheet that maybe somebody was updating. Maybe. So as far as software goes, other software issues, a lot of, th and this is nitpicking. When you're talking about the sheer volume of work you're doing, even small annoyances can be enraging because you then realize this set me back X number of seconds and now I can't hit this quota when the, the time that I wanted to hit it in. So like, for example, the keyboard shortcut command K, or if you're a Windows user, control K which where you highlight a word or a sentence, you can hyperlink it. Doesn't work in, the, in that editor. And many other shortcuts didn't work either. I think the paste in plain text, the control option shift V doesn't, didn't work either. So this all sounds dry and boring, but imagine but you're trying to- Eight seconds off your, you know. Yeah, because you start, so my workflow was really to work in Google Docs as much as I could because of the autosave. And I didn't, it was pretty, pretty streamlined. And in Google Docs does support all of those shortcuts that I just mentioned. So if you're writing a long article, you have a bunch of links that you put control K, you link the text, et cetera, et cetera. But then once you have to transfer it to the CMS, you, so you, you command A, you select all the text, you put in CMS, none of the links carry over for some reason. So then you have to go back and add them all again, but now you can't add them with command K anymore, you have to highlight them and then click the button in the CMS that has a link on it and then add the link and then check a box so that it opens in a new window. Mm -hmm. And that's another SEO thing because if you don't open in a new window, the person leaves the page and then maybe they don't come back. So it hurts the dwell time and other metrics of the page within Google. And I'm putting it, this is in scare quotes thinks that the page is not as useful because people were bouncing Maybe. off or leaving yeah. it. Yeah. So we said proprietary software. Of course, Google Docs and Microsoft Excel are super proprietary software. They're not open source, but what we mean by proprietary is these incredibly 
bespoke in-house tools that have no application outside of the company they were built for. So becoming the world's greatest wizard in, I'm just going to call it application alpha, the CMS, that's not a marketable skill at all because you can't use it anywhere. Nobody else uses that. I actually, I, about a year ago, I got a part-time job at a different content mill. And instead of actually having a, like a text editor in the CMS, they just asked to put Google Docs links and they <laughs> would, it, it was form that you submitted and it's okay. What's the title of your article? What is the link? Click submit. And I was like, oh, this, this is so easy. Well, yeah. <laughs> this is useful and easy and good because I don't have to do things twice. You don't have to do it. Yeah. It just, it was a lot of extra work. And on top of the workload, it just didn't, it didn't work at all. And I'm not saying every content mill is like this, but I'm not sure what the logic was here because if you're trying to be as efficient as possible, the article that I think we talked about in a previous episode about being a toiler on the content farm, he compared, the author of that article compared the logic of this content mill to Taylorism, which was, there was a famous person named Frederick Winslow Taylor who calculated how much time was needed to load a certain amount of pig iron onto a train down to the second or something. And this type of mentality was really what the content mill sort of the logical end of that, you know, applied to writing. And, but with this proprietary software that was like borderline unusable, it really threw a wrench into that because it's, well, if you're trying to streamline this process as much as possible. And the only, the only explanation I can really think of, well, there's two. One of them was what I talked about earlier was they wanted to take this and somehow sell it to other companies or license it, which I don't know what the interest there ever was. And the second one was it prevents employees from having marketable skills. So then it's harder for them to go somewhere else because they put in their resume, I'm an application alpha guru. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. But also, how are they selling it to other companies? Because every company has their own software. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I don't even know. I don't really know any details beyond just the fact that it started to happen. And I don't know if it's, I assume it's, like I said, like a software as a service cloud thing. God forbid it be some kind of on-prem Oh God. Uh, application. Cause then at some point it would probably be end of life. And we all, as we both know, people love their on-prem stuff. This is directly related to my work life right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is related to mine too, because yeah. we definitely have a, we have on-prem and cloud products and people have strong feelings about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an intense, it's an intense thing. And just for, if you're not familiar with these terms, cloud means it's hosted on somebody else's server, usually like a large provider such as Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, or Google Cloud Platform. And on-prem means it's hosted on your own servers. So on-premises is what on-prem is short for. And it's the server is literally in your building somewhere. Physically. You have control over it. And I can see why people get attached to that because you have control. You don't really have to keep paying for something because you already bought the most expensive thing. You already bought it front. Whereas well, with cloud, pay the people to maintain it and you pay. Yeah. You know, I've never really done the updates. cost analysis on this. Of course, with cloud, you, somebody else is responsible for managing all of that. So if there's some niche technical issue, 
it's not your problem. It's somebody else's problem. And that's really one of the biggest value propositions of cloud. It's if you think about owning a home versus renting a home. So if, you know, the ceiling caves in and you own the house, you're the one who's going to have to figure out what to do with that. Whereas if you're a renter, that's the landlord's problem. So it's, when you think about it, I've often thought about that analogy though. Like people talk about how great cloud is, but then people don't really seem to think renting is so great (laughs) compared to home ownership. So I often think about, I think about that a lot because I think the, the two analogies go really closely together. I definitely think there's a narrative around cloud computing that maybe isn't as honest as... Oh, content mills have really really beaten the cloud concept into the ground. You and I in particular have beaten the The, content. I would even go so far as to say the entire narrative, the buzzword cloud, the content mill industry Mm -hmm. is a not insignificant part of why that is so prevalent. So... Right. It's... Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I know we're on a tangent here, but I'm getting, I am, I have been working on launching a new cloud product at (laughs) the place where I work and people are just coming out of the woodwork to tell me that no, in fact, we should not do this because the on-premises solution, it has been so much better and we've been using it for 15 years and change for change's sake is not great. And like you were saying, it's out of the systems that it was written, like the language that it was written in is out of support. So it's a security nightmare. And I don't know, it's just easier to let someone else manage those tools instead of having to pay somebody to, to do that. Yeah. 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 I think cloud is, it's portrayed as being really great and in a way like, I've said her before, it's hard to avoid it because it's baked into so many things. Like it's baked into like what we're talking about with Google Docs. There is a cloud back into that. Everything you're typing, everything you're doing in there, it's being saved in the cloud somewhere. It's not being saved on your, the, the local store. You can work offline with Google Docs, but that is very much a secondary feature. Yeah. Not to go too far in the cloud tangent, but you have to think about the cloud narrative. Who does it benefit? Benefits the cloud providers above all, because when you do all of your infrastructure in the cloud, you're completely at the cloud provider's mercy because they basically own your systems lock, stock, and barrel. They, your most sensitive data is on their server. It's not in your own buildings, not in your own server. So that, yeah. So actually our next one about client communications, that sort of has something to do with what I was just talking about with cloud because a lot of these clients, they do have pretty strong. Well, actually, let me back up there a second. I, they do have very strong narratives about their product. Like they think that they're like, I'm sorry, I had a client that I wrote for at the content meal who is really trying to sell a cloud narrative, oh, but I had several of them. Yeah. And this one, this was after your time, but they also were trying to differentiate themselves from their competitors by saying, we also have a great on-prem product. And I tried to tell them that, like, I thought this narrative just didn't make any sense. You can't be saying something like, we're a cloud-first company, we're better than our competitors, and the reason we're better than our competitors is because we do on-prem better than our competitors do. And they just didn't register with them at all. And I was just like, I don't know. 
I don't know the, the whole narrative about cloud is that it's better than on-prem. So when you muddy the waters, when you say that your differentiator is that you're so good at on-prem. Yeah. That, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Clients or client communications, these really, these definitely rattled me because it depended on the client, of course, but sometimes clients are incredibly negative. So about, this is our next, this is our next oh, yeah, point yeah. here, right? Yeah. I tried to segue okay. into it. Yeah. So. Client communications are not super great or fun. Anyway, continue. Oops. Yeah. Like I've, one, one thing is when you say they're not fun, it's a lot of times this could be sitting in on a call where basically you listen to other people talk about how bad your writing is. And it's, uh, so that's always, I don't know. I think anybody would probably be annoyed by this, especially if you're a more sensitive person, or if you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have a really big ego. Either way, it's not going to be a great time. And yeah, it was pretty demoralizing the first time that happened to me. I sat in a room. I was not, I did not make myself known on the call, but our manager and I sat in a room and talked to a pretty irate customer about how my writing was bad. There was no couching it. There was no like, this didn't work for us. It was very like, this article is bad. (laughs) <laughs> and our manager backed me up and he yeah. was essentially like, it's not a bad piece. I, this kind of goes into the client communications not being great because they were not communicative about what they actually needed or what they actually wanted. So when we give them pieces, we try our best to do what they told us to do. This is a product that we are producing for them. And when they come back and they say, oh, no, we didn't want this. We wanted this. Or we we think that your tone is not what we wanted, even though it, it was written in the manner that they wanted it to be written in the first place. It was really frustrating because then you would have to go and you would have to redo that work. And that redo sometimes often did not count towards your 4,000 words. You, that was something <laughs> totally extra. Like you had no, there was no time set aside for that. Yeah. And it's really... A lot of times it was really like blind leading the blind thing because you're talking about, like we said earlier, 23, 24 year old Mm -hmm. writer, no background really in the industries that they're writing about, writing for a company that doesn't really know what it wants from its marketing strategy. Yeah, you've got this situation where you're going to get some wires crossed and something is going to get lost in translation, just to mix metaphors here, but it's... And so then you had to sit in on these calls and they're not really very fun. And sometimes somebody will email you. They even be, I don't know which one I liked less, either getting like the long, angry email or sitting on the call, probably the call. But yeah. It's definitely the call for me because I yeah. don't like confrontation. Emails I can ignore. <laughs> yeah, emails I can either ignore or I can write my own response, which often I feel like will address a lot of what I'm saying or what I wanted to say. In a more articulate way, which if I was on the call, I might not be able to put that together like on the fly. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So it's, and a lot of times you get these sort of feedback that you really can't do anything with. So it's something like, well, I just thought, and this is not exactly what clients say, but they'll say something like, that just for me, it didn't sizzle enough. It didn't pop. And so these are cliches, but it's. I think what that reminds me of, it just reminds me of somebody who has read something about writing about or they like took one creative writing class in college and they're using that vocabulary to 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 degrade the writing that that we've been giving them and 
it just they it doesn't sound like they know what they're talking about right think, the brain yeah. doesn't pop really, yeah i think really. it's i think it's something like they i think people think like Ernest Hemingway is like the ideal writer and maybe they don't think of him in particular. They think of this, like the style that he pioneered where you have these short declarative sentences or they think that something like a, the elements of style by E.B. White and yeah. William Strunk. So I, I actually did blog about this in one of my newsletters, like about the, I think it was the SEO machine, but there was like this fantastic article that someone wrote about Strunk and White, where they compared them to Anthony and Scalia and said that they were like, that their ideas of what made good writing were very conservative and outdated. It was like, this is how a man writes with, and it's. You can't see me right now because podcast is audio <laughs> medium, but I am rolling my eyes. And I never even really thought about it, but sometimes like some of the advice in there is just absurd. Leave out unnecessary words. Which words are unnecessary? How do we know that? Yeah. And, and it's, you could go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but, and they, this article, which I'll put the show notes as well, it goes through, they actually contradict themselves quite a bit, but it's just this idea that you could have these style rules that are really rigid and give themselves a sort of certain, a very specific type of writing, which actually, I think I'm going to, I'm going to just quote from the article because he explains it a lot better than I do, but he says, quote, Usage absolutists are the Scalia-esque originalists of the language maven set. Their emphasis on, quote, timeless, unquote, grammatical truths in opposition to most linguists' view of language as a living, changing thing is at heart conservative. Their fulminations about the grammatical violations perpetrated by the masses mask deeper anxieties about moral relativism and social turbulence. The implication is obvious if a lean, mean modernist is in capital M. Prose of, quote, plainness, simplicity, orderliness, and sincerity, unquote, is manly than a style that rejoices in ornament and complexity and sharpness wit with a knowing insincerity of irony, or camp is unmanly, feminine, or worse yet, sissified. I was like literally, I think, laughing up till I cried reading this because it really articulated how I felt about that. Because like I, I wrote for this account near the end of my time there. And this was actually the same account that was pushing the whole word cloud company, but we're really great at on-prem. And I would write like these really long articles and we would sit on these feedback calls and it would be stuff like, are you really supposed to use there as a third person singular? Oh my God. And I was just like, geez, it's like, I am wasting my time even sitting here. And it's grammatical rule. And I don't know, people get hung up on grammar and, and plenty of clients were like this. They, you know, this was one. There's several different types of client feedback. So you get like the long rambling email, which is, I stayed up all night reviewing this and I can't believe that you wrote this way. That's one extreme. The other extreme is something like somebody goes through, puts it into Word and does a bunch of copy edits where they try to like make it sound punchier somehow. Uh, and it's... You get it back and you're like, it, and it, it has completely butchered. Oh yeah, it's what you had written, and it's, it butchers the English language. Also, I don't think I ever had a client who I would say their feedback on like copy improved the copy. There was a there were clients who improved if they might you know, provide information that I had not had when I wrote it. Technical knowledge that we don't necessarily have. So having that was often useful, but in terms of copy editing, no, I would say that almost never. And I think 
actually, this is one of the items I had for later, but I'm, and I'm going to skip ahead to it. But they have people think about, we want like business type writing that's very clear and straightforward. And I was just reading in that paragraph, which is so fantastic about how it's manly and it gets to the point cloud is the strongest, most vigorous thing ever. And I was thinking about this. So when people say they, they, they talk about how great business writing is, but then I guarantee you, if I had written a lot of these articles in the style that they wanted, this, this plain spoken, straightforward, they probably would, would have hated it because they would have thought I'm not getting anything for my money. I could have written this. Nobody's going to write. So he's going to read this. It's boring. My theory is that what people really want is syntactically interesting writing that has like variety in its clause structure that has a varied vocabulary, not too esoteric, but with some unusual words thrown in. Basically what they want is good writing. And, but how do you get good writing? But they don't know they want that. They don't know they want <laughs> that, but they do want it. And right. the only way you can really get that type of writing from someone as if the writer is also like a really good reader because inevitably the best writers are the best readers. To circle back, she's a horrible phrase, to Infinite Jest, which I had mentioned earlier in the podcast, this novel, Infinite Jest, that came out in 1996. And it's very long. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about it, even though it probably has one of the highest opinion to actually having credit ratios of any book because everybody has some thought on it. But uh, very few people have probably ever made it all the way through because it's literally a thousand pages. I will admit that I am not one of those people. I've well, not been able to make it through. <laughs> I will admit that I am one of those people. So nice. <laughs> it's, but I was just thinking about this because it came out the same year as like Bill Gates's essay on a content is king came out in 1996. Oh, that's so incredible. I was thinking about this because like you would think about if you had read Infinite Jest and this content is king essay you probably would have had a better grasp, not only on how to be a good writer, but even about the actual subject matter of technology, if you had read Infinite Jest instead. And I think a lot of people don't get this. They see like literature as something that is impractical, that has no utility in the real world. And it's, of course, on the one hand, I don't think that really something has to be super practical to have value in the first place. That's not even true of a lot of literature predicts the future a lot better than like actual analysis, like factual analysis from people who see themselves as experts. So like I was looking at like an infinite gesture, there's a passage about how there was a, uh, so this is about, they're talking about the television industry. And so infinite just takes place in the future. And it talks about quote, between the exponential proliferation of cable channels, the rise of the total viewer control, handheld remotes known historically as zappers, and VCR recording advances that use subtle volume and hysterical pitch sensors to edit most commercials out of any program taped. So that's basically TiVo. And this is, before, this is in 1996. But then even going more than that, later on, he says... So this is, he's talking about like the video system that's called Interlace. That's capital I, capital L. He says, quote, and so what if their campaign's appeal basically ran, what if instead of sitting still for choosing the least of 504 infantile evils, the Vox and Digitus Populi could choose to make its home entertainment literally and essentially adult? I.e., what if, according to Interlace, what if a viewer could more or less 100% choose what's on at any given time? So this is 1996. So he's basically 
describing Netflix. And the streaming. And I've been, so this is, this book is a work of fiction, of course, but just from those two passages, like if you had read this, you would have a pretty good ability to use technical language in a way that was compelling. And even though this is, like I said, this is totally fictional, but the way he's put all this together, like all those buzzwords about tech, but then He's put in these sentences like the, with those what ifs where he has the what if and then a parenthetical and then he repeats the what if. And you can just see somebody in real life like talking like that. I'm just thinking if you had read this book, you would have, you would really have a, a leg up in writing about technical content, even though the book itself is not anything about anything real, at least factual. But it is about the world. It, it is by somebody who was a keen observer of the world and who was describing it really well. But then, as I was saying earlier, people would think of this as something that was sissified or it was not part of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And uh, while we're at it, I will just uh, spoiler alert for a 25-year-old book. But the last line of this book is always one that I've liked. And it's about, there's always a skirmish. There's like a big skirmish between a couple of characters. And then some of the characters, he falls down, gets knocked out. And so the last line is, and when he came back to... He was flat on his back on the beach in the freezing sand, and it was raining out of a low sky, and the tide was way out. And so I never really thought of, like, the sky as being low when it was raining. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that the last two words of the book are way out, which is a synonym for exit, I always thought that was so clever, too. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, the first line is also quite famous it's one of the only books i can think of where the, the, a tale of two cities is the other one where you know, the first and the last lines are both kind of pretty memorable yeah. the first line is i am seated in an office surrounded by heads and bodies Ugh. yeah now i have to read that it's time consuming i got some value out of it but i think you're right though that reading things like that maybe not necessarily exactly infinite we're not telling you to read infinite maybe we are Maybe we are telling you to read Infinite Jungle. Yeah, it's one of those books. That I don't know if I could ever recommend it to most people, but it's... But for I, a person who wants to be a writer and for a person who, like you're saying, like we want to produce good writing, reading literature and studying literature is actually really valuable. Oh, it's super valuable. It's. I was just thinking about how a lot of copy edits I make in my current job is just removing wordiness. Like people will say things like the files that are in this directory. And often I'm like, you can just say the files in this directory. You don't need that that are. And I would never. Have you thought about maybe that they are trying to meet a word count? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be that. But the other thing too, is that I never would have thought that if I hadn't taken Greek and Latin because in those languages, the verb to be is often implied. So you don't have to write it out in every sentence, even though when you translate it to English, you would probably put it in there. And I was like, well, in English, sometimes you don't need that either, because in that case, the clause that are, that doesn't add any value to that sentence. It has, it doesn't change the meaning in any way. But from the other perspective, if you were working at a content mill, having those extra two words, it sounds like nothing, but any sort of word is valuable because using even as well as instead of and. Anything to hit the word count, like it can be small potatoes like that, or having quotes from other publications. And you say, even the author of the article you're quoting from, my favorite was always Stephen Von Nichols from, I think it's from ZDNet, because his name is so long, it took up a lot of space on the page. And uh, so that was always a fun one, but anything to pad the word count. So 
the word counts really are detrimental to good writing though, because yeah. So we're trying to be good writers and we're trying to produce good writing and we're doing that as well as we can within the confines of the job itself. It, we, we tried, but we definitely also were a person with a job and with a quota <laughs> to meet. And I think that you mentioned it before about how it's hard to, hard to get over maybe not wanting to be as good of a writer all the time. And I think that's an important like dichotomy that we had to juggle because we want to be a good writer, but also there's no time for that. Yeah. You don't have the, you don't get the time that you need to hone the craft the way that you would need I, to do it. I think the people who were good at the job stayed as long as we did. I think that you have to have a certain kind of skill set to be able to turn off your poor graduate school self who, wow, this would never and at me any points yeah but also be able to produce that kind of content very quickly and very accurately is it, it takes us a, a certain kind of skill set one of the important skills there and we don't have to go super down into all of what helps you succeed at this type of job but one of them is creating certain types of almost templates for articles like yeah. you can say even though it's a totally about a totally different subject i can use the same sentence structure that i use in this other one and that will give me a certain number of words and I can really almost swap out the words and it won't be that difficult of a swap. And so that, that helps a lot or having a certain phrases that you like a lot. Although the, and then you have a big long clause and a comma and some people sometimes like that and then, or anything that give it some variety at the same time. Cause you know, having different types of clauses, short sentences, plus long sentences. And then, you know, none of this is really profound advice because it's just like, basic good writing, but uh, it, people don't, a lot of clients, they don't think about that at all. They think that they, what they want is like, they want like the, uh, the Neil Patel world where Neil Patel just says some background. <laughs> oh, oh like yes. Content marketing maven with some, it's not at the agency that we worked at, but he, if you work at a content mill, you'll inevitably somehow become aware of Neil Patel, but he got a lot of, he gotten some controversy. I think it was either this year or last year when he said he didn't read books. He, if you wanted to find something out. He would just go on. Really recent. It was yeah. sweet. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it maybe just feels like a long time ago, but because uh, yeah. it's already gone through Twitter and the outrage cycle and finished it. But uh, he could just look it up on YouTube and then books are outdated once you read them anyway, because they were written years before they were published. So that's really the, that's the baseline of like respect for the literary world that exists in the content space. And I think that's one reason why they have no idea how good writing is crafted or what goes into it. Or what they want. But, yeah. Yeah. But the thing about word counts and so on, that's actually a good segue into the next item, which is work creep. Yep. So it was. Yeah. So we talk a lot about word counts. We have spent a lot of time kind of riffing on that subject. But the fact of the matter is that writing is not all we did. And that added to the amount of stress that was involved with the job because not only did we have to meet a quota, and I will admit that by the time I left, I think the quota was down to about 2,000 words a day, yep. maybe even like 1,500. It depended. C certain content got weighted more in right. a, some sort of nebulous way. Right, yeah. But, but that's not all we were doing. So by the time I had worked there for a year and a half, I was being asked to do more and more things, more complex things. 
So not just writing and not just editing, but we had to do client worksheets, like briefs, where we described what the client is doing and what they want, the kinds of content that they want. We were doing keyword research on several different systems. We were writing out content strategies and things like that, which I will gripe a little bit because as writers, that was not necessarily supposed to be our job because there was a person who was supposed to be doing the content strategy, but a lot of that responsibility ended up falling on the writers a lot of the times. And so all of those things that I just named, plus also coming up with that content and submitting that content. And and none of that came with a substantial pay increase. So the work creep of, oh, you're a content writer, but oh, but actually you're also an SEO strategist. And also you are a scheduler and a keyword researcher and all of these, what is the right word? It's not auxiliary and ancillary. So and all these other like ancillary activities that you're doing that don't actually have anything to do with actually writing. Yeah. You're, the way you described it as work creep is really accurate. And it made me think of, maybe it's just the word creep, but it made me think of something that I'm sure you're familiar with, but the term power creep, which is something that's very common in like collectible trading card games and for people who aren't really in this space power creep it, it refers to how so in a collectible card game like magic the gathering or Yu-Gi-Oh, the term power creep means that over time the relative power power of the cards keeps getting it keeps going up so like the cards released in 1996 are way less powerful than the cards released in 2006 so if you were to limit yourself to the cards from the earlier time you would have no chance against a deck built with cards from a later time. Because you know, as the game goes on, they keep adding like new mechanics, they add new rules, they add, yeah, so it becomes more and more complex. And some, so this, I saw this playing out in the content mill in a similar way. So when I started there, the products were super basic. There was something like you could, a client could buy a certain number of 200 word blog posts every month. And so these are really, really short. They weren't really meant to do anything except go into the sites, like the news feed on the site. As some, I don't know, a lot of sites are like this, but a lot of corporate sites, they'd have something like products, you know, about us. And they'd have a page that was called them like news or insights or something. And this was where all the content mill stuff got posted. And then from there, though, then you got something, was sort of an upgraded version of it, which was like, it wasn't all that much different seemingly, but it was way more expensive and it was, and this also like and to use the collectible card game analogy, as cards have gotten more powerful over time, they have also gotten more expensive. So people have to get the best cards. You've often had to shell out more, but then they keep adding more. And then with the content mill, then after they did that one upgrade, so it's like, it was almost the same product, but it was more expensive. And it had a few extra bells and whistles. Like I think it came with a pull quote, like some web design fanciness. And then from there, they kept doing other things like that. And you started doing these things where you do all your keyword research and put that into an outline. And that alone could be like a half a day by itself of trying to go through the different keyword engines, find all the keywords, put them into this document, write an outline, send that to the client, get that approved. And so then it just kept, and I'm sure, I don't even know, I'm sure if I were to 
go back there now as a fly on the wall, they would probably have something else that was even more complicated and convoluted. And the person who's writing it would still be expected to basically shoulder this for no extra money or no extra just to adapt to it. I thought about this with with that with Yu-Gi-Oh cards. It used to be most Yu-Gi-Oh cards had like maybe one or two lines of text. And now it's like when you see one, it's you might as well just sit down and read it for five minutes. <laughs> because well every card has three or four effects now. And and then it has a bunch of limitations. Like if you activate it this turn, you can't activate something else this turn, the same turn you use it. And it's but then it's like the game still has the same basic rules that it had 15 years ago. You have the same number of life points. You have the same, all the basic mechanics are essentially the same, but then you have all this added complexity. So the appeal of playing in a way is, in my opinion, diminished because diminished, yeah. there's just, there's so much to keep track of. If you're a writer and you're so in, in the content mill world, with, instead of power creep, you have word creep. Yeah. So instead of a card that has 200 words of text in it, you have your product that has to have all of these. I think with some of them is you have to have the search document that sort of documents all your keywords and how you're going to use them. And then you also have to, of course, write the actual thing. You have to put it through the content management system. And there's just so many hoops to jump through. And then there might be some meetings along the way. And so I think you're right that over time, the volume has decreased. The average of instead of writing 4,000 words a day, it might be a little bit less than that, but it doesn't feel less because now you have, a, you're expected to produce something that is more complicated and, and better and, right. but really not for any huge amount of, of change in compensation. It's like all these little things are meant to show that yes, we are a marketing company and yes, we do know what we're doing, but really we're having 25 year olds just out of college with, in my case, no marketing background, even a little bit, I gain, you know, and I know that you're supposed to learn things on the job and this is not me complaining about, oh, I had to learn SEO instead of on the job instead of, but it was, to me, it felt like having the writers do all of these things was more of a show to the clients that, oh, yes, we do know these things and we are actively thinking about these things, even though we had already been actively thinking about them. Yeah, of it was trying to show value, I think, to the client because some clients... Well, at the same time, giving us more work. Yeah, trying to show value, but then, yeah, for the writers, it's just, here's more work and no change in compensation. Here's your, yeah, I don't know, it's here's your super complex card combo you need to pull off and there's no no context or anything i had to do it here's my one here's my one joke that i know about Yu-Gi-Oh. you're saying all of this stuff and it's very complicated and we're trying to activate cards i just want to play my blue eyes white dragon because that's the one that wins every time yeah yeah it's blue eyes white dragon is really one of the iconic cards probably only dark magician is more i was thinking about that one too yeah <laughs> I actually looked this up recently, but yeah, Dark Magician is the most supported card in Yu-Gi-Oh! It had, there's 50-something cards that mention it by name in, wow. in, in the text. I think Blue Eyes, there's maybe 20-something. But uh, yeah, it was, it was Yu-Gi's favorite card. So it, it's propped up by the show. It's propped up, yeah. Yeah, and just as a sidebar, there is a one of the most famous Yu-Gi-Oh! sites is infinite.tcgplayer.com. 
And the content on there is like just absolute cookie cutter type SEO headlines, like the 15 most expensive cards from legendary duelists pack three or right. the five greatest cybers monsters of all time. So yeah, it's. Yeah. So we're in good company as we're saying. Yeah. So they've got the Yu-Gi-Oh site. Let's figure that out. So it's, they've, I don't know if they're hiring. I don't think they're hiring a content mill to do that because that would actually be a pretty interesting assignment if you had to, as a content mill writer, write like expert level articles on how to like build a Yu-Gi-Oh deck. Yeah. Or, Are they hiring in general? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Are we looking yeah. for freelance work right now? I don't now? know. Yeah, I think the requirement would probably be to have to be good at it first, which, yeah. That, you would hope. Anyway. It would help, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. I was actually looking for some Magic the Gathering cards the other day that I had for since at least 15 years ago, and I can't find them, but uh, I think I do know where they might be, but it might be that they might actually be at, at my parents' home, but looking at eBay at the price, a single card in it might be worth $300 because some of them are on the, uh, they've never been reprinted, so... All the copies that exist, but there aren't any new copies coming online. So right. anyway. Anyway, yeah. after, after that, after yeah. amazing sidebar about Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, it's, I think the next one that I guess I wanted to talk about was that I've, in previous episodes, I've talked about how Google has gotten worse over time. It's just there's so many ads on it. And a lot of the articles, they don't feel like they were written with a human in mind. They have this sort of template to them that it's very awkward. So I think one of the episodes I talked about how one of the top ranking articles for the keyword enterprise software is something like enterprise software is an application, which just drove me crazy because it's just the phrasing is so bad. But anyway, it's the consequence of this for a content mill writer is that if, so on the one hand, you're writing for Google, you're trying to get your stuff on Google, but you're also using Google to try and find material to base your own article out off of. And so once as Google gets worse, in part because of your own actions of flooding it with garbage, it's harder to find good stuff to not plagiarize, really. We're talking about a, a very time-compressed job where you don't have very much time to write about anything. You can't really do it. Look, look at stuff to come up with ideas. Yeah, so you have to come up with something. And then with you, sometimes you'll search Google for this and there just won't be very much that's useful there. It's, it'll all be something that's like from a competitor or it's something that is, maybe it's about the same topic that the client is focused on, but it's a different spin on it. And if you were to try and recycle it somehow, they would say, oh, that's not what we do. And it's, and so then you're grasping for straws because at that point, it's, you could go back to the client and be like, I don't know anything about this. Can you give me some material? And then at that point, the client's sort of, why am I paying you to do this? And then I guess we have writing expertise, well, in a way. But so that's, and then the other thing too is with keyword research, which is another, so along with searching Google for stuff to, to rip off or emulate, keyword research is the other real pillar of the content mill day to day. And a lot of it is garbage in, garbage out thing. So the keywords that are generated by some of these tools are just absurd. They're, they're things that maybe one, literally one person has typed. And they, because the keyword might be so niche that the only times when I searched for it, it was some very odd phrase that you would never be able to work organically into an article. And so then you have, that's your, that's what you're structuring the whole article around. The article is going to be garbage because the keywords are garbage. And so at that point, 
you have a lot of these articles that, that there's really, there's no there as Gertrude Stone would say. So the entire essence of the article is really the writerly touch. So can you just, can you dress this up somehow in a way that makes it where people might sit down and read it? Can you craft some kind of narrative around it? So it's... And here we are back at good writing. Yeah. Even though Google is making it hard for us, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, uh, I think Google ha has in a way has made this, has made our writing worse. It's like Google is trying to sell, they're trying to sell us a treatment by selling us a disease, just to use sort of a medical metaphor. So they're selling the problem of your site is not discoverable. Nobody can find your site. Here's the solution. The solution is to either buy an ad from Google or to work with someone else, like a content mill, like an SEO content mill to get your content on there. So I see Google and the SEO industry as they're like symbiotic, like they, they, they live off each other. Cause mm. if Google didn't exist, what would SEO even be for? Would would, be the, I don't even yeah. think we would put those words together in a phrase. Yeah. We wouldn't even have any notion of that. And then without SEO, what is Google? Google is just, it's just some place where you, there's a bunch of ads and random stuff. So the, 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 with SEO sort of gives a prestige to Google, it makes it seem like this is an objective, rigorous ranking system and we know how to make it work. So right. it's Google is the SAT and your SEO is like whatever, like Kaplan or whatever the testing or the, the agency that help, helps you do well in these tests. So I think the, I mean, they feed off of each other. So it's, uh, and it goes back to what I was saying at one, in previous episode about how the categories make the content. So after I said that, I read this book called what's, I think it's called what's wrong with fat or what's the matter with fat. And it's about how people frame the issue, how people have looked at the issue of weight and fat over the years and what kind of frames they've used and how do they, do they see is fat presented as a medical problem? Is it presented as a medic, as a moral problem? Is it presented as something positive and so on? And one of the things they talked about was how the fact that the like World Health Organization and these different bodies just became obsessed with the quote unquote obesity epidemic. Mm -hmm. Lots of researchers who otherwise would have had no interest at all in this topic, all of a sudden got on the train of trying to push how big of a problem obesity was because that's where all the funding was. And uh -huh. so it's like the category was created first and then all the content flowed into it. And I think that's a really good example of that because somebody just decided that this was an issue and then all of the content was shoehorned into that frame. And so with Google, it's Google is just an objective ranking system of what's on the web. That's what, that's a naive conce conception, but really Google has created this category of, we want these sort of easily machine scannable pieces of writing and everybody's okay, let's make everything a machine scannable piece of writing. Even if that's not the way the best thing to do. So that's my, that's my two cents on, on that one. So, <laughs> so we are getting ready to wrap up here. Yeah. We've got just a few, actually our last two are just fun ones. Yeah. We've got, so, we've, so we've got some fun ones and I'll I'll know. about our fun ones. I, I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, okay. So I'll go first. And the first one, the first fun one we have is the, and this is uh, some inside baseball, but I'll try to explain it. It's the tech target addiction. So tech target is like a series of sites that, and I haven't really been in, invested in them or in reading them in, in a little while ever since I left the content mill, but they write on all kinds of topics that are related to very niche technical 
matters like software defined networking, software defined wide area networks, data centers, anything of that data analytics. So this, uh, and they, all, they even had like a whole library of really super optimized SEO stuff around what is, and then just insert whatever niche technical concept you can possibly think of. And so there's an author there. Her name is Margaret Rouse. And so she was, she was like really one of my go-tos. It's hard to imagine working a content mill without Margaret Rouse. <laughs> so it's uh, because. What I find funny about that yeah. is that Margaret Rouse is probably a like ghost written by some I can't imagine that Margaret Rouse is either a yeah, real person I know or he like actually writes this stuff. I don't know the combination of her her name and her portrait on the site which didn't yeah. change for many years yeah. and it reminded me of those onion articles where they interview people on the streets and it's like the same portrait that they had 25 years ago yeah and it's so it was like and the thing about Margaret Rouse is the content that she produced it was helpful but sometimes you just got you would read it and you were like how would anybody ever get to this page? So one of the ones she wrote was something like, what is a platform? And that's the title. What is a platform? And then, and so then you get the classic SEO opening sentence in IT, a platform is any hardware or software used to host an application or service. <laughs> an application platform, for example, consists of hardware and OS and coordinating programs that use the instruction set for a particular processor or microprocessor. Yeah. I'm laughing at this just because it's, it's so, it's just been optimized to death. But at the same time, I, I definitely admit that over I used a lot of Margaret's articles as building blocks for my own pieces because trying to figure out what these things meant on my own would have taken so much time. It's so, like babies teaching babies, right? So like yeah. those articles are SEO optimized articles and we are using them to write our own SEO optimized <laughs> articles. Yeah. So yeah. like it's the machine teaching the machine in a way. It's like, a, yeah. Yeah. And the stuff that Margaret was writing and the stuff, there were several other go to got Stephen J. Bigelow was out. Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I quoted that man so many times. But like, it was the basics. And so yeah. we have the basics so that we can inform ourselves on the, the more technical side of the content that we're writing. But they're, Anyway, it's a, it's a full circle. It's, a, <laughs> it's we, they're writing content and then we are writing content based on their content. And then may, maybe they read our content and they continue to write. Maybe, yeah. So. It's, it was, yeah, she had so much stuff and it was some of this I've never even, I've never even heard of. Micronaut framework. I'm sure there'd be some client who that would be the only thing they would do would be something related to Micronaut framework. And so reading Margaret's article would be like, at least now I, I, I can write about this without sounding like a complete, yeah, a complete rube, which is always the, that's the fear. Client will just go after you for that. And so my fun one, it's not going to be nearly as eloquent or as well put together as that. I simply wanted to comment this. So this, the episode of this podcast is called top 10 thing. Well, it's not 10. It's more like seven top. We'll call it seven. <laughs> Top seven things that we wish we did not know about content mills. Yeah. And the thing that I wish I did not know about the content mill that we were for is that the person who ran this company had the least, the worst tailored suits <laughs> of all time. He would come to these staff meetings. And I think I'm speaking specifically to Alex at this point and not to the audience. And maybe perhaps to some people that we worked with, but he would come to these staff meetings and his suits were so untailored 
and so ill-fitting that it was like, does this person run a company? What is happening? <laughs> and that is all that I have to say about that. I, <laughs> the man. thing that I wish I did not know about working for that content. <laughs> it was referenced in that popular article uh, where the writer talked about how he was greeted by someone with a British accent and then he never talked to him again. His analogy was that the content mill was prescribing medicine to the clients. So this, this actually goes really well with what I was saying about, about, What's what you were saying? <laughs> about Google, but how they prescribe the medicine to clients and it works. And based on market factors, the content mill needed to start taking its own medicine. He said, quote, it's time we take our own medicine. And he paused. And it's good medicine. So there you go. Imagine this horribly tailored suit and him saying that. And it's good. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Okay. That's such a fun image in my head. Yeah. That's a good way to, to end it. And just thinking about a man in a poorly tailored suit stopping on your face forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. So as we were, as we're wrapping up, I just, that was a super fun conversation. And I, I hope that someone got some some uh, something out good of, information yeah. out of that, or at least some entertainment. Yeah. Me was talking about stupid suits. I uh, so Alex, where can you find your blog? So my or your newsletter. Sorry, my newsletter is I believe it's linked in the podcast info because I think Substack actually auto populates it with that. But it's I'll put it. Uh, that's why I, I don't think I usually put it in the show notes because I think it's it's there's like a thing at the bottom that says subscribe to such and such, but mm -hmm. the URL is two as in T O O solid dot substack dot com. So the newsletter is there and the podcast is there too. So if you actually visit the show page in the podcast client, it'll take you to the same site that the newsletter is hosted on. And so all of the newsletter content is there. It's none of it is gated. Even if you can subscribe for free, you can pay if you want to for some reason. But yeah, so it's, that's where it is. Yeah. And the, basically Alex's newsletter is a really good kind of deep dive into the kinds of stuff that we talk about on the podcast, except it's not with me, <laughs> unfortunately. No, people want more of the super deep divey stuff and I enjoy reading yeah, it. Yeah, actually I need to get back to that. It's been a few weeks since I, because I've been posting the podcast episodes instead. So. I'll do my self plug here. I am writing a novel, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Fortunately for everyone. And I talk a little bit about that and I talk a little bit about some of the other projects that I have been working on at my website, which is lizmakesstuff.com, spelled exactly how it sounds. And I think it's also linked in the show notes. Yeah. And you can follow me on Twitter at Liz Cultivates. And yeah, just uh, reach out if you have any questions or want to talk about content or writing or anything like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter as eArcWelder. So that's E-A-R-C and then Welder. Exactly how it sounds. There's no spaces or characters in there. And that was just a really dumb play on words from on TVs. So one of the HDMI ports is sometimes labeled as EARC, which is Enhanced Audio Return Channel. And so oh, I was like, lovely. Yeah, Arc Welder, E Arc Welder. It's good. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. It sounds like an early internet name, E something, E, and then a noun after it. Toys <laughs> or eBay, something from the 90s. No, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. Okay. We will wrap up here. I catch us in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.